Welcome to Life Study of the Bible, brought to you by Living Stream Ministry. These programs are based on the ministry of Witness Lee and his 21-year-long crowning work, The Life Study of the Bible. We'll include excerpts from his spoken ministry, which focuses on the enjoyment of Christ as the divine life as revealed in the Bible. We hope that through these studies, you'll be brought into a deeper enjoyment of the Scriptures and of our dear and precious Lord Jesus. You can contact us by sending email to radio at lsm.org or reach us toll-free, 888-LIFE-STUDY. Now, let's join today's program. The book of Acts has been described as the backbone of the Bible. Of course, it stands between the Gospels and the Epistles and chronicles many fascinating and inspiring events. But fundamentally, this book portrays the great turn in God's move, or the transfer from one dispensation to another. Stay with us today as we explore the great transfer in the book of Acts on this life study of the Bible with Witness Lee, a program furnished by Living Stream Ministry. Witness Lee, a faithful co-worker of Watchman Nee in China, served the Lord Jesus for his entire life, eventually on nearly every continent, and he left us with a rich and bountiful harvest from his life of ministry. One notable fruit of his labor is the life study of the Bible, an exhaustive book-by-book exposition of the entire Bible, with an emphasis on unveiling the revelation of the divine life throughout Scripture. The life study of Acts is the basis of our program today, and generally, we present selected short passages from his spoken messages. On our program today, however, the tape that we have just is not up to an acceptable broadcast level. So we've asked Ron Kangas to be part of our program today and to cover in a more comprehensive manner this entire life study message from Acts chapter 13. Ron, welcome once again to the program, and thank you for your willingness to uh, cover this classic message in greater detail. You're welcome, Chris. Uh, I'll do my best to offer some helpful fellowship. Ron, we mentioned in our opening today this great turn or transition in God's move on earth and with man, a transition from law to grace, from the Old Testament dispensation to the new, and now even from the ministry of Peter to the ministry of Paul. How do these all fit together, and what is behind such a profound move of the Lord? The crucial matter in Acts related to God's move to carry out his economy, for the fulfillment of his heart's desire, is what we call the dispensational transfer. This is the transfer experientially and practically by the believers out from under the Old Testament dispensation, the dispensation of the law, fully into the New Testament dispensation of grace. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, through his death on the cross, fulfilled on the one hand and terminated on the other hand all the things of the Old Testament dispensation. In his resurrection, we were regenerated by God to be the children of God, to become members of the body of Christ as the corporate expression of Christ. This is altogether a matter of the New Testament dispensation of grace. 
After his resurrection, the Lord Jesus appeared to the disciples off and on for a period of 40 days, speaking to them concerning the kingdom of God. He gave them further training and preparation to carry on the work of the New Testament ministry. One of them, or actually more than one, asked him, Lord, will you restore the kingdom to Israel right now? This indicates their thoughts were still material and physical and related to the Old Testament things. And the Lord spoke to them very directly, saying, It is not for you to know the times and seasons. The Father knows that. Rather, you are to be witnesses of me. This indicates that the disciples themselves, the apostles themselves, needed a transfer in experience and in practice, a transfer in actuality, out from under the Old Testament view and way into the view and way of the New Testament economy. And they took initial steps toward that. And they became living witnesses in resurrection of the resurrected and exalted Christ. They preached the gospel of the kingdom and they practiced the church life. But the record of Acts indicates a lingering influence of the things of the Old Testament upon the church in Jerusalem in particular. So through the book of Acts, we have the spirits working continually to effect fully and absolutely this dispensational transfer. The key person, the key vessel chosen by God to effect this was the Apostle Paul. So in a remarkable way, and in a way very honoring to Peter, the book of Acts makes a transition from the ministry of Peter to the ministry of Paul and his co-workers. And Paul was the one, in particular, who received the revelation of God's New Testament economy for the building up of the body of Christ. He saw this, he lived it, and he was used by God to write concerning it so that we may follow him to be fully in the New Testament dispensation. I don't mean to be coy or clever. This means we should not be Old Testament Christians, but Christians truly living according to the New Testament economy of God. Ron, we had a couple of life study messages uh, recently regarding this uh, remarkable and very honorable transition, as you phrased it, from the ministry of Peter to the ministry of Paul. It's really a lovely picture of the coordination of the head in his body for his move, isn't it? This shows it's not an organizational matter, neither is it something of human arrangement or of politics. This is truly the move of the Spirit of God. Peter had his portion, and he was faithful in it, but Paul was the one particularly chosen to be the channel for the revelation concerning God's economy to be written down. And he was the one that was particularly chosen to facilitate this transfer in a thorough way. So we also need to make the transition along with the Spirit and see deeply and intrinsically into the significance of the book of Acts in the way of life. And we'll see some of these things as we fellowship further 
from chapter 13. Well, Ron, part of this great turn or transition, of course, was the spread of the gospel as it spread in its record uh, in Acts. It was first to go to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And here in chapter 13, we see that Paul and his companions followed this pattern whenever they came to a new place. It seems that it was his habit to go to the synagogue and speak to the assembled crowd whenever he was allowed. The Bible refers to Judaism as a fold, which means a holding place for the sheep, the people of God. Now, the Gospel of John in chapter 10 tells us that the Lord has other sheep which are not of this fold, and that he will gather them together with the sheep in the fold, and together they would be one flock with one shepherd. Uh, This sounds a little confusing, or at least it can be, if we're not clear about just what the fold is and what is the flock. Help us out here, Ron. Let's begin, actually, with the flock. We know from the New Testament that the church is called God's flock. Peter charged the elders to shepherd the flock of God, and Paul did the same. In John chapter 10, we see that the Lord, as the good shepherd, would lay down his natural human life in order to impart his divine eternal life into his sheep, that there may be, and this we should note, one flock and one shepherd. The one flock is the church, composed of Jewish and Gentile believers. The one shepherd, of course, is Jesus Christ, our Lord, the head of the church. Now, let's go backward from here in John 10. There were many sheep in the fold. The fold served an important purpose. On the one hand, it signifies the law that preserved God's people and conducted them to Christ, that they may be justified by grace through faith. On the other hand, the fold refers to the religion of Judaism formulated according to the law. The fold is a matter of the Old Testament dispensation. The flock is a matter of the New Testament dispensation. The Lord has the full right to come to the fold and to call the sheep out and to bring them into himself as the pasture. But he had other sheep. They were to be the Gentile believers who were not of the fold, not of Judaism. They were to be called and saved and regenerated, and together the Jewish and Gentile believers were to be the one flock. It is to go contrary to God's New Testament economy, to divide the body by having Messianic or Jewish churches or Gentile churches. Ephesians 3 says the Jews and Gentiles are one body. We know from Paul's word in Romans that he was commissioned to preach the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentiles. So in Acts, in making the dispensational transfer, Paul would first go to the Jews who met in the synagogue. He did not interrupt the meetings. Rather, there was an opportunity for visitors to speak, and in Acts 13 he was asked to speak then he would speak a word of Christ, a word concerning Christ, 
to the Jewish seekers of God that were there and also to the God-fearers among the Gentiles. However, in this case, as well as in others, he was thrust out of that fold of the synagogue. Only a few of the sheep, those chosen unto eternal life, believed. Then he turned to the Gentiles, fulfilling the pattern established by the Lord himself and fulfilling his commission to go first to the chosen people of God, the Jews, in the fold, to preach the gospel so that the shepherd would call them out so that they with the Gentiles would be one flock and one shepherd. We need to face this fact in the divine revelation that the flock of God is one. In the New Testament dispensation, the fold is over. God's people should leave the fold, whether it's Judaism or anything that functions in the principle of a fold, such as a human religious organization, and follow the shepherd to the pasture, which is the shepherd himself as our food, and be in the one flock under the one shepherd. The goal of God's economy, we may say, using this imagery, is to have a flock composed of God's chosen from among the Jews and the Gentiles who have the life of the shepherd, the life of God, and who flock together in the name of the shepherd, Jesus Christ, under his unique shepherding and headship. If we mean business with the Lord to be one with him, to make a dispensational transfer, we need to leave anything that God identifies as a fold and follow the shepherd into the pasture and to be gathered together as the one flock under the one shepherd. Ron, you referred to Paul speaking in the synagogues and the way he was focused. Uh, of course, there are a number of examples presented uh, in the book of Acts as to how the gospel was presented to people, particularly by Peter and by Paul. And these examples surely can serve as a pattern to us. Of course, we saw this a number of times with Peter in the earlier chapters, and now Paul and Barnabas speaking in the synagogues, they speak very powerfully. But the pattern seems to be that they restricted their speaking to the Bible, to the Word of God. They were not speaking out of their own human knowledge or from themselves. And further, they were very careful to keep their speaking focused on Christ alone. What can we gain from this pattern for our own speaking to people? Before we gain something, and, and, and I'm not trying to be clever you know, with your question, we need to lose something. Uh, just as Paul lost a lot of things in Philippians 3. We need to lose in the sense of dropping worldly philosophy and just natural cultural concepts and minister the pure word of God. And that pure word of God is focused on Christ, the Son of God. So what do we gain from the pattern? We gain or we receive or we should receive a deep impression that we should not 
speak from ourselves. We should not speak our opinion, uh, our concept, but the Word of God, the divine revelation. But to be more particular, the divine revelation, the Word of God, is focused on Christ. The Lord charged the disciples to be witnesses of him, of a person, of the real, wonderful, living person of the resurrected Christ. So the apostles proclaimed the person. Of course, there is a body of belief that is the substance of the message, but this belief is altogether related to the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, and the Lord. A lot would be gained if all those who minister on the Lord's behalf today would be reduced to speaking the Word of God purely and to be focused on the person of Christ. It is so easy in actuality to focus on something other than the person of Christ. And I'm not trying to belabor a point covered elsewhere, but I want to give an illustration. In the experience and in the teaching of some, the book of Acts is a book on speaking in tongues or a book on signs and wonders or a book on what they regard as the baptism in the Spirit. But actually, the proper understanding of the book of Acts is it is a book concerned with the propagation of the resurrected Christ by the living witnesses of this Christ who believed into him, who were one with him, who followed him, and who served him with their whole being. It is the person who must have the first place. After all, this is God's economy, as revealed in Colossians, that in all things Christ would have the preeminence. May the preeminence of Christ be restored to our preaching, our teaching, and our living. Ron, I'd like to turn our focus now actually to the substance of some of Paul's speaking. And I'm going to read a short passage from chapter 13, and that's the chapter we're covering today. And this will introduce a very big point regarding Christ in his resurrection. And in this passage, Paul is going to quote from Psalm 2. Uh, this is chapter 13, verses 30 through 33. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. And we announce to you the gospel of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fully fulfilled this promise to us, their children, in raising up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, Ron, let me read additionally a short footnote from the recovery version of the Bible to the word begotten in verse 33 that we just read. Resurrection was a birth to the man Jesus. He was begotten by God in his resurrection to be the firstborn son of God among many brothers. He was the only begotten son of God from eternity. After incarnation, through resurrection, he was begotten by God in his humanity. 
to be God's firstborn son. Ron, as I mentioned, this is a big point. But help us, if you would, understand how it is that Christ had a kind of birth in his resurrection and the connection of this birth to his being both the only begotten and the firstborn among many brothers. This is a profound and deep and also mysterious subject. Let's begin this way. The New Testament, especially in the writings of the Apostle John, reveals that Jesus Christ is the very God. In particular, the Scriptures reveal that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the only begotten Son of the Father, coexisting with the Father from eternity to eternity. He always was and always will be in his Godhead, in his deity, the only begotten Son of God. On the other hand, we have these verses in Acts 13. Paul quotes from Psalm 2, You are my Son. This day have I begotten you. Then he demonstrates that this day on which this wonderful one was begotten to be the Son of God was the day of resurrection. Now we must ask, since Christ was the only begotten Son of God from eternity, how could he have been begotten in resurrection? Well, remember that the only begotten Son of God became a man. The Word became flesh. In eternity, he did not have the element of humanity. Through incarnation, he put on this human element. While he was in the flesh, he was indeed the only begotten Son of God. But he had a part of him, humanity, the human nature, that was not the Son of God. That human part was born of God in resurrection to become the Son of God in another sense, in the sense that his humanity was uplifted through resurrection into the unique sonship of the only begotten Son of God. In virtue of this aspect, Christ has brothers, and God has many sons. So Christ is called the firstborn among many brothers. Let me try to summarize this line of fellowship this way. With respect to his absolute eternal deity, he is the only begotten Son of God. But with respect to his humanity, Christ is also the firstborn Son. So he has not ceased to be the only begotten Son. He forever will be the only begotten Son in his deity. But now, as the eternal God-man, he is also the firstborn Son, and as such, he has many brothers, and God the Father has many sons. 
Well, Brother Ron, this is a message that has a lot of weighty content. And, uh, of course, we feel uh, that we would have very much benefited from our brother's sharing on tape. But in his absence, I am very grateful to your participation and help with this. As you mentioned, it's profound. It's mystical. Uh, there's much here. What I am grateful for, and I really mean this, is that the message has been put into print. It's been edited. It's been prepared. There are many other messages related to this in in other life studies. So the serious seekers of the truth have a chance to pour over this, to pray concerning it, to search the scriptures, and to receive from the indwelling spirit with his enlightenment the assurance that this really is the truth. In a short broadcast like this, we can only try to outline the significance of some of these points. Some may say, oh, this is deep, this is too much, but God revealed it for a purpose. It's recorded in his word for our learning. We need to go deeper. We need to study more strenuously that we may understand what God has revealed concerning his Son in incarnation and resurrection, so that we may be one with God in the resurrected Christ for the fulfillment of God's heart's desire. So we would urge our readers to study the Word, to ask seeking questions, to pray, and to avail themselves of the life study messages that we're eager to provide for their benefit and edification. Well, I will go ahead and finish that thought, Ron, by informing our listeners that this Life Study message that we've been talking about this past half hour is included in Volume 3 of the Life Study of Acts. The Life Study of Acts is offered in a four-volume set, and we're offering each of these volumes with about 15 to 17 messages bound together in a very, very nice format and a very attractive book not a booklet, a real uh, bona fide book, about 150 pages, each of these volumes. If you're interested in that life study message, as I said, bound together in volume number three, please call us toll free. Also, let me point out another tool that uh, we talk about very frequently and use, as we did today in the broadcast, the recovery version of the Bible, complete with over 9,000 footnotes. This, uh, this tool is equally, if not more, invaluable than the life study volumes. Uh, we would be glad to give you information about the recovery version of the Bible and how you can receive it. Uh, it's in a number of different formats and uh, costs, depending on how it's bound. And uh, all of that information is yours. Just ask us about it when you call us toll-free. And that number is 1-888-LIFE-STUDY. That's 543-3788. If you're interested also, just make note when you send your card or letter to Living Stream Ministry, Post Office Box 2121, Anaheim, California, 92814 or when you send us email and as always I like to mention our email address is simply radio at lsm.org Ron thank you for being with us today you're welcome you've been listening to Life Study of the Bible with Witness Lee Brought to you by Living Stream Ministry, publisher and distributor of the works of Watchman Nee and Witness Lee. If you'd like to contact us, just email radio at lsm.org or call us toll free at 1-888-LIFE-STUDY. That's 
543-3788. Thanks for listening.